what works and what doesn't. Understanding what works. What works for me. Understanding your own business to know what works. What works for you. This is What Works. distinctly remember my audition for elementary school chorus. I love to sing, but it's not, let's say, one of my celebrated talents. So I'm standing next to an upright piano in our school auditorium slash gym slash cafeteria and singing along to my music teacher playing some accompaniment. I belt out what I imagine to be the melody, full of confidence in my big, bellowing, contralto voice. When I'm done, the music teacher asks me to try singing the piece again, but without dropping it down an octave. She played a few notes as they were meant to be sung, and I can very clearly remember telling her that when I sing in that register, it feels like I'm a squeaky mouse. I was convinced that I just didn't have the same vocal range as other girls. I decided that day that singing in public wasn't for me. Nobody told me that. Nobody even insinuated that. It was more an act of rebellion. I had other fish to fry, musically speaking. So I was going to take my big, low voice and go home. Fast forward eight years, and I'm at my entrance audition for college. Part of being accepted to the music department required establishing a sort of baseline for musical well-roundedness, which could then be used to properly place one in classes. At 17, musical well-roundedness was my middle name. Para, musical well-roundedness, Seafill. Music theory, no problem. Sight read a piano piece, piece of cake. Capable of playing anything you can blow into? Sure thing. But I also had to sing in this audition. Again, I explained to our department chair, who was also a distinguished vocalist, that my voice is very low. On a good day, I might be able to hit the C above middle C. He wasn't going to take any of my crap, though. He smiled and said, let's just see. He started me down in the range I was comfortable in and then proceeded to go higher and higher until I was well above that C above middle C. I think I ended up singing the G or A above that. I was shocked, shocked, I tell you. He merely gave me a knowing grin and told me he was pleased to have me in the program. Now, the truth is that I do have a solid contralto voice. And it's also true that I can sing higher than I thought I could, or at least I could then. I had assumed, even at nine or 10 years old, that that was how my body produced sound, and I was proud of it. Why? Why was I proud of it? Well, I was proud of it because it made me not like other girls. You know, that old chestnut. To acknowledge that my voice extended into a higher range was to acknowledge my femaleness. 
to acknowledge what I already perceived as a sort of fragility, a lack of power. I'm Tara McMullen, and this is What Works, the show that explores how to navigate the 21st century economy without losing your humanity. This is the sixth installment of our self-help LLC series. Today, we're talking about voices, which might seem a strange topic for a series exploring the business and politics of self-help. But how we use our voices is a critical component of how we exercise power or don't. How we use our voices is a component of our identities. And after all, there's a very good reason that figurative phrases like finding your voice and own your voice are integral to the grammar of self-help. We often think of voice in those phrases as meaning your opinion, your values, or your desire. But at the root of these phrases is the literal physical imperative to use our vocal instruments to make our way in the world. It's worth noting that vocal speech isn't the only way to make yourself heard, of course. Augmented and alternative communication devices make it possible for people who have lost or never had the ability to speak own their voices too. Sign language equips deaf people with the expressiveness and artistry we tend to associate with speaking voices. The writer Alice Wong recently wrote of her experience with losing the ability to make vocal speech. She's currently communicating with an AAC, which poses many challenges, especially when communicating with non-disabled people. However, she writes, quote, I can still grin devilishly, roll my eyes sarcastically, and my personal favorite, give the middle finger. So while we are talking about speaking voices in today's episode, we're also talking about power, access, and who deserves to be heard. There is no voice that is better or more deserving than another, whether it comes out of a human body or it comes out of a communication device. So speaking of power, access, and who deserves to be heard, the way I learned to use my vocal instrument was to keep my voice low. That's how I was going to make my way in the world. Because speaking in a lower voice is more authoritative, right? It gets you what you want. It helps people treat you better, right? That's Samara Bay. Lower voices equal pow- equals power. That is a thing in our society that I am interested in subverting. But for now, that is a thing. And I know high school me was really smiley and, you know, must have thought at some point subliminally, huh, if I keep my voice low, uh, I seem a lot more like I'm in on the joke, like uh, no one's going to mess with me. Samara is a Hollywood dialect coach who's worked on blockbuster hits like Wonder Woman and Guardians of the Galaxy. But she also works with leaders, politicians, and executives to help them use their voices to influence the world for the better. I get to think about the minutia of vowels and consonants and the musicality of thought out loud. That's the speech side, how breath supports that, what we can do tonally, how pitch works, right? All of these technical things. And then There's the other side of it, which is for all of us, we have access to all of that. But if we're not using it, there's a why. And it usually has to do with old stories 
I shouldn't do this. I should do this. When I talk too high, I lose credibility. If I do vocal fry or up speak, I've heard these terms and thought pieces. I don't quite even know what they are, but I've been told that I do them. I don't know who to turn to. So I'll just, as I say, vocally hide, right? I'll just try to go as neutral, as monotone, as uh, the people who tend to sound in charge as I can. Let's back up because Samara's origin story is quite telling. Like now, looking back, I realize that the connective tissue is how do we perform ourselves? And how is our voice part of that performance? And then how do people treat us because of that performance? And what if we make an adjustment? Then what? So I pursued an acting career pretty straightforward. I got an MFA in acting. I was in my 20s, I was in New York. When I was 24, I completely lost my voice. It was back lightly in the mornings, but painful, but audible, but painful. And then by like midday, it'd be gone again. And I had been, you know, I would have been slightly pushing through to just communicate like basic information. You know, yes, I'd like some coffee. and. And by midday be gone, by nighttime, I would just be like a hermit, holed up in, you know, this little tiny apartment I was renting in Providence, Rhode Island in the dead of winter with tea, thinking, what is my voice trying to tell me? I'm not sick. There's something going on. And I finally got myself to an ear, nose and throat doctor and he stuck a scope. I don't know if any of your listeners have experienced this, a scope up my nose and down my back of my throat. That's like a little, a little camera. But out of it, I got this amazing image of my vocal cords that are, you know, seared in my mind forever. It's basically a V uh, that open and close and there were little angry blisters on the same spot on both sides. And that is a telltale sign of vocal nodules. And specifically of not speaking at exactly your body's quote unquote optimum pitch. Meaning a little too low or a little too high. In my case, a little too low. And it was just a habit I picked up and it didn't affect me until it did. And you know, I'll say, because this ended up being something I really had to think through when I started writing this book is, um, that day when I got that diagnosis, I went back to my acting class. I'd missed, you know, the morning session. I walked in, everyone looked at me. And the acting teacher, who I really respected, stopped class and he said, so what's the diagnosis? And I said, you know, painfully, vocal nodules. And he said, huh, just as I thought, bad usage. <gasps> It's such a weird, awkward term, right? But I knew what it meant. You know what it means. It means on some level, whatever you did, it's your fault. Yeah. Bad usage. And I think when any of us get told you say like, and it's undermining your power, bad usage. You picked up a habit for self-sabotage. <laughs> you idiot. <laughs> right? Now, this is the ultimate double bind in the grammar of self-help. You learn how the system works and behave accordingly. Then, when things don't go the way you were told they would, you don't get what you want, you get blamed for doing exactly what you thought you were supposed to do. Samara learned that speaking just a tiny bit lower helped her to sound more powerful, more authoritative. That worked for her, as she said, 
until it didn't. When she received the diagnosis, her teacher blamed her for having literally hurt herself. To heal, Samara dropped out of the play she was rehearsing for and took a break from singing lessons. She went back to her parents' house and started a regimen of speech pathology with a lovely woman who retaught me how to speak. And one of the things she did was record my voice talking in my optimum pitch. And so then I was trying to match it and then listen back to the recording. And I realized when listening back, it's not that different. On the outside, it's almost negligible. But on the inside, it triggered a tiny bit higher in pitch, triggered for me all these stories. Ditsy. No one will take me seriously. And I went back and found my speech pathologist when I was writing this book 20 years later. And she says, this is, this is what it is for young women. This is what it is. They are almost always speaking a little too much below their optimum pitch. A little. You guys, we're talking about a little. And then it's fine for a while. It gets you what you want. It helps people treat you better, right? Speaking of women talking below their optimum range, we should probably pause for a moment and talk about the infamous Elizabeth Holmes. Elizabeth Holmes was convicted on four counts of defrauding investors in her company, Theranos, on January 3rd, 2022. Now, if you don't know the story, essentially, Holmes dropped out of Stanford at 19 with a dream to build a machine that would allow anyone to test a single drop of their blood for numerous disease markers. Holmes used the concept and an ever-expanding personal network to raise almost half a billion dollars in venture capital between 2004 and 2014. At its peak, Theranos was valued at $9 billion, and Holmes herself was named by Forbes as the world's youngest and wealthiest self-made woman billionaire. Unfortunately, the device Holmes envisioned, raised money on, and signed contracts with major chains for was deemed a bioengineering impossibility. It didn't exist, and it wasn't going to exist. Hence, the fraud charges. Now, if you know one thing about Elizabeth Holmes, it's that she profited on a concept that flat out didn't work. But if you know two things, the second is that she has a low voice. This is what happens when you work to change things. And first they think I don't think anyone really knows the story with Holmes's voice other than Holmes herself. But whether her voice was naturally low pitched or purposefully affected or some combination of both. Her voice was an asset in the world of venture capital and biotechnology, where women have a notoriously difficult time raising money to fund their ventures. Holmes seems to be an over-the-top example of how women learn to lower their voices to succeed. But it's a phenomenon that many women and queer people have experience with. So Samara had learned to speak in a lower pitch, but it just wasn't sustainable for her physically. Of course, at the time, the greater political implications of this problem weren't really on her radar. She just wanted to know, can I go back to school? Can I learn how to talk again? And, you know, then I had this opportunity many years later when my career got me to the point where I sort of had to face whatever actually went down when I was 24. And, you know, think to myself, well, <laughs> What if this book that I'm writing 
What if I had it then? There is a sense of that voice is part of our identity, and we don't have a lot of language for that in you know our culture, but like it is, and 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 partly. You know, it's our way to communicate with the world, so we do actually rely on it on a daily basis. And especially in this day and age, and especially with social media. And especially with, I don't know, I'm surrounded by not exclusively entrepreneurs, but an entrepreneurial spirit, which requires that we say out loud, this is what matters to me. And by the way, when we say out loud, this is what matters to me, what an incredible opportunity most of us have to hide or show up. And the hiding, the vocal hiding, is something we've had a lifetime of experience. The legacy of hiding our voices extends well beyond our lifetimes. In ancient Greece and Rome, it was the law. Mary Beard, a scholar of Roman history, wrote a short book on the relationship between women and power over time. And a big theme of the book is simply the fact that in many ancient societies around the world, women were not allowed to speak in public. She writes, quote, Public speaking and oratory were not merely things that ancient women didn't do. They were exclusive practices and skills that defined masculinity as a gender. To become a man, or at least an elite man, was to claim the right to speak. Public speech was a, if not the, defining attribute of maleness. So not only were women not allowed to speak, public speech was a critical part of masculine identity. In order to speak publicly and be taken seriously, women have used various tactics, but chief among them is affecting a lower-pitched voice. Beard continues, quote, All tactics of that type tend to leave women still feeling on the outside, impersonators of rhetorical roles that they don't feel they own. Putting it bluntly, having women pretend to be men may be a quick fix, but it doesn't get to the heart of the problem. Now, it's relatively easy and probably pretty familiar to analyze voice and power through a male-female binary. Yet, like so many systems of oppression, what we're really talking about here is a narrative of overcoming, which is a theme I explore in my book. Our culture loves stories of overcoming. Jesus heals the blind man. Science makes it possible for the deaf child to hear. The poor immigrant goes to college. The pioneer settles the West. But most often, these stories of overcoming are really about conforming. These stories urge us to see a narrow representation of the human experience as normal and ideal. The protagonists shed their differences to become more like the venerated standard. Now, for me, that means things like adjusting my behavior so that I physically stim less when I'm around non-autistic people, or pretending I'm fine when multiple conversations, music, or construction noise is completely overwhelming my ability to function. It can also mean performing small talk and putting on a smile when I'm depressed or emotionally exhausted. In terms of language, Black children are often taught standard American English rather than learning about African-American vernacular English because it's not quote-unquote professional. AAVE isn't what success sounds like because it's not what white people sound like. 
upwardly mobile young people in the South often learn to soften their accents, something that the podcast Dolly Parton's America explored with college students. Said, son, you need to change your accent. I willingly changed it. Can't. Can't. You know, as a kid, in addition to being based here, my dad was in the military. We moved around, so I got to hear a bunch of different accents, and I thought, wow, I'm different. I want to sound like them. Genuine. And transgender people Genuine. face all manner of challenges when it comes to their voices. Here's Mackenzie Dunham, a therapist who specializes in working with transgender kids and the host of Camp Wildheart. I've known kids who have completely stopped talking because of their voice. I've also known kids, primarily trans girls, who simply won't talk in public places or in school. They'll ditch choir or theater, things that they used to love, all to avoid having to hear their own voice. Many kids feel that their voice is a huge giveaway of their transness, which isn't a big deal if you don't care about being trans, but many kids do care about being trans or being seen as trans. They care because of their own internalized transphobia, but also because they know that people will treat them differently based on their perception of their gender identity. So what do we do about it? How do we help a girl whose voice has dropped or a boy who's the only one of his friends whose voice hasn't changed at all? And This American Life recently did a story on one man's vocal transition. All those concerns. The reason I would give myself was I can't give up my singing voice. Maybe I thought the universe would punish me. You know, I maybe I thought that hey, if I do this monstrous quote-unquote thing and start testosterone and ruin this beautiful voice that I spent so much of my childhood building, then the punishment I'll receive is that I won't ever feel the pleasure of singing again. Each time we overcome one of our differences to become more like what's considered normal, we get incrementally closer to what power sounds like or looks like. But at the same time, we alienate an important part of our identities and have to put in extra work to do so. And to make matters worse, no matter how far we inch toward normal, toward what power looks like or sounds like, we can't ever quite get there, at least not for long. As Beard put it, we become impersonators of rhetorical roles that we'll never own. I have this really practical background in speech, both with working with actors in Hollywood. You know, my dialect coaching career took me to working with Gal Gadot on Wonder Woman and, uh, you know, a TV show coming out in the fall called Hunters, season two of Hunters with Al Pacino about Nazi hunting, where I coached, you know, 25 accents from around the world. I get to do this kind of work. And I get to think about the minutia of vowels and consonants and the musicality of thought out loud. That's the speech side, how breath supports that, what we can do tonally, how pitch works, right? All of these technical things. And then there's the other side of it, which is for all of us, we have access to all of that. But if we're not using it, there's a why. And it usually has to do with old stories I shouldn't do this, I should do this. When I talk too high, I lose credibility. If I do vocal fry or up speak, I've heard these terms and thought pieces. I don't quite even know what they are, but I've been told that I do them. I don't know who to turn to. So I'll just, as I say, vocally hide, right? I'll just try to go as neutral, as monotone, as uh, the people who tend to sound in charge as I can. 
And then in these moments when each of us has the opportunity to maybe pitch our idea that's super close to our heart or present that finding that is only ours or ask for promotion and talk about our worth. In those moments of opportunity, we bring in the history of hiding instead of the ability to show up. And so for me, permission to speak so beautifully captures these two different parts. Our voices express themselves in all sorts of ways. And really, the human voice is an incredibly complex instrument. We have so many options to modify pitch, tempo, timbre, and volume. And we also have options for varying the quality of the words we speak. Yet what continues to constitute a good voice is one that uses very few of those potential variations. We don't want a voice that's shaky because people will think we're nervous or overly emotional. We don't want a voice that's too soft or people will think we're weak. We don't want a voice that's too loud or forceful because people will interpret that as aggressive, angry, or shrill, depending on your visual presentation. As a podcaster and a producer, this is something I think about a lot. I remember someone once telling me that they didn't want to invite a potential guest on their show because they, quote, didn't have a voice for podcasting. What does that even mean? Now, what's gross is that I know exactly what that person meant. You know exactly what that person meant. Both Sean and I have become really adamant about voice diversity at Yellow House Media. One of our goals is to decolonize podcast editing. And that means we try not to edit someone's speech to make them sound more professional or smarter, which was a very common request when we were getting started. Sure, we take out ums and likes when they start to get in the way of what's being said, but most of the time, we leave them in. We coach podcast hosts on how to write more like the way they speak so that if they do need a script, it sounds more like they're talking and less like written text. I'll tell you, it's hard to convince someone that their ums and likes, giggles, and even crosstalk serve an important communication function. We are so accustomed to prioritizing white male comfort over our natural ways of speaking that not doing so feels risky. And in many ways, it is. Several years ago, This American Life did a piece on the complaints the show receives about the women who work on the show. A man wrote, quote, Listen, I know there's pressure to hire females, in particular young females just out of college. And besides, they're likely to work for less money. But do you have to choose the most irritating voices in the English-speaking world? I mean, are you forced to? Or maybe, as I imagine... NPR runs national contests looking for them. What's striking in the dozens of emails about Vocal Fry that we've gotten here at our radio show is how vehement people are. These are some of the angriest emails we ever get. They call these women's voices unbearable, excruciating, annoyingly adolescent, beyond annoying, difficult to pay attention, so severe as to cause discomfort, can't stand the pain, distractingly disgusting, could not get over how annoyed I was. I am so appalled detracts from the credibility of the journalist, degrades the value of the reportage. Now, these angry emails come from both men and women. 
You know, I was going to say across the gender spectrum, but my guess is that people who don't identify as either men or women probably don't write angry emails about the quality of other voices. I mean, I could be wrong, but I think that's a fair assumption. Men, of course, are angry that women haven't worked harder to sound more like men. Women are angry often because they themselves had to put in the time to sound more like men or more like how men wanted them to sound. Voices. Damned if you do, damned if you don't, I guess. But seriously, have you ever had someone apologize for sounding emotional? Sounding nervous? Sounding frustrated? I certainly have. But I got to tell you something. As an interviewer, there are few things better than asking a question that gets an emotional response. I want to hear the quiver, the words that have never been spoken aloud, the deep belly breathing that backs up a story someone feels deeply about. No apologies necessary. I want to hear it all. One of the things that kept coming up over and over for me when I when I've coached people and then and then tried to articulate it for the book is this idea of caring out loud. When we think about any talks or even like moment viral moments when people grab a microphone and say something true and then we send it around, what's happening in those moments is often, as I call it, people caring out loud. And the thing is, through all kinds of completely understandable practice, we've all figured out how to not do that because it's really vulnerable to say this is what matters to me and I'm going to also sound like it matters to me while I'm talking about it. We, we, we worry we inconvenience people because we might get emotional. We, you know, worry that, well, then they'll know how to hurt us because we won't seem so blasé. We will reveal that we care. Um, there's also, I think, the problem, just to get super gender, you know, stereotypical, and if this doesn't fit you, great, but there's a little bit of a culture-wide pattern among women and people-pleasing where we pretend that we care when we actually don't, and then we get rewarded for it. I mean, I call it, you know, Starbucks voice. Like, oh my gosh, can I help you? Yes, of course. Like, it's customer service. If our tips depend on us being nice, well, that's a great reason to work on being nice. Linguists will say every habit we've picked up from saying like, quote unquote, too much to this pitch too low or too high, we do for a reason. I think that's so valuable because there's so much shame that can start to form around these things. Bad usage. Instead of, I picked it up for a reason. You know what that reason was? It worked in that room. It worked so that I could get by in that, you know, uncomfortable space with people with more power than me. I played nice. I was non-threatening. They liked me. And so I kept doing it. And honestly, I think that most of the people that I work with and most of the people who I think are readers for this book are people who are at that inflection point where they're like, this isn't working anymore. I was non-threatening. They liked me. So I kept doing it. For some, the worst that can happen when our voices don't sound quote-unquote professional or sound like they quote-unquote should is an angry email pops into the inbox. For others, adjusting their voices might be a way to avoid potential physical or verbal abuse. 
And of course, there's a whole world of experiences in between those two poles. So I asked Samara how she thinks about when to embrace our more natural ways of speaking and when we might actually want to make adjustments to make others more comfortable and make ourselves less threatening or different. This is obviously a simplification, but there's two ways of talking. <laughs> what an amazing <laughs> opening sentence, right? There's two ways of talking. One... That's how we know you're an expert. <laughs> <laughs> Binaries are my thing. There are two ways of talking. See if this rings true, though, right? One, when we feel that we are being evaluated, whether it's literal in a job context or just a room full of people who are trying to decide whether to take us seriously. When we feel like we have something to prove. And the other way is when we don't. I am very, very interested in that second way. It lives in all of us, or, you know, most of us. And if it doesn't live in you, then, you know, I hope you can find some more gentle friends. Think about how you show up with your absolutely favorite people who just get you. And then think about what the standards are for professionalism. And if those two things are at such odds, perhaps professionalism is what needs to shift a bit. I mean, these are all provocations, right? I, 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 part of my job as a coach is, of course, to um, nudge. And then the other part of it, the, I don't think I'd be responsible unless I also called out that there are rooms that are literally not safe. And if you're a woman and if you're a person of color and if English is your second language, you know, there are layers of, of danger in spaces, whether somebody will physically hurt you or they will dismiss you or they will fire you. So part of what we're talking about when we're talking about these nudgings, bringing our favorite selves into important moments is being really clear with ourselves, discerning about what rooms we can practice this in, knowing it's actually probably more than we think, but it's not everyone. What does power sound like to you? And I don't mean power like uh, a power cord. I don't mean power like a big blast of sound, right? I mean a authority or self-confidence, I guess, self-authority. Um, and I've been really interested in this question because I think, I think at the heart of everyone's issues with how do I show up authentically versus how do I get taken seriously, if that is, you know, sort of what seems to be the binary, is this question of, well, what in our society for thousands of years has uh, power sounded like. There's been sort of a standard that none of us discuss that I'm actually thinking of as a voice bias. In the, in the same way that we're thinking about a lot of other biases these days in our culture, the grandfather of the podcast voice is the radio voice or the BBC voice in, in the UK, which was also standardized at a particular time in history and again, quite arbitrarily. A lot of what we consider the, the sort of standard way of speaking or as professionals would call it, uh, standard American English came from a dude named William Tilly, turn of the century first working in Germany and then near Colombia, although he couldn't get an actual job at Colombia. And he was Australian. 
and he made up an accent that was part British, part American. We sometimes think of it as the Mid-Atlantic accent. You can hear a great example of this accent here. Build these forms out at the desk over there and bring them to me. There's another great one here. Do you mind if I ask you a personal question? <laughs> Why, yes, of course. One of the things that's really interesting about it is he made it up and called it the standard. And you know who flocked to his courses near Columbia, but not at Columbia? Schoolmistresses who were obsessed with his extremely rigid style, who became his mentees, and who disseminated standard American speech to their students. And then it got to Hollywood. And then it became obviously, I mean, not then, I think throughout, it became synonymous with class. You know, we Americans are not supposed to be a class-based society, and yet obviously there is elitism everywhere, and the sound of educated and elite is standard American English. And that has left so many people feeling disconnected from their own voice or from what power sounds like. When we're talking about your authentic voice, your authentic voice is some conglomeration of all the messages you've gotten since you were a literal baby. These types of facts about ourselves actually become our voice story, our story of, of our relationship to our voice and to everyone else's. Now, when you're listening to this podcast, I don't know who you are or what your voice sounds like. I don't know if you worry about its pitch or the gravelly quality it takes on sometimes. I don't know what stories have formed the way you speak or how you wish you spoke. I don't know if you speak with vocal cords or through augmented and alternative communication aids. But what I do know is that we all have something worth saying even if it's simply articulating what we actually want for dinner just this once. And I also know that you deserve to be heard. And I'll say one other extremely simple thing. How do you have fun? What you're talking about does not have to be light and playful, but how do you allow yourself to have some kind of a squirrely, mischievous something inside of speaking in front of a public? because that is where the power actually lies. Find out more about Samara Bay at samarabay.com and pre-order her new book, Permission to Speak, wherever you buy books. Next week, we're going to forge into some really tricky self-help territory, the body. You'll hear from three people who think deeply about this and are honest about their own challenges and stories. India Jackson, Jessica DeFino, and Tiffany Ema. If you're ready to confront some challenging stuff, this episode is for you. Do we really all have the same 24 hours as Beyonce? Hey, What Works listeners, this is Jenny Blake, author of Free Time and host of the Free Time podcast. In honor of Tara's new book, What Works, a comprehensive framework to change the way we approach goal setting that's launching in just a few short weeks, we are borrowing that question from her fantastic breakdown of what's really behind it 
And we are using that as a kickoff for a live podcast conversation via Spotify Live with me, Tara, and Charlie Gilkey. Charlie is the host of Productive Flourishing and the author of Start Finishing with a new book of his own in the works as we speak. Together, the three of us will be exploring time, money, and energy capacity. And then we'll open it up to questions from you during the second half. Our conversation will be on Thursday, October 20th at 1 p.m. Eastern Time. Get all the details and reminders on how to join us by registering at itsfreetime.com slash Spotify Live. That's itsfreetime.com slash Spotify Live. See you there. What Works is a production of Yellow House Media. Our production coordinator is Lou Blazer. Emily Kilduff is our production assistant. This episode was written by me, Tara McMullen, and edited by Marty Seafelt and me. Sean McMullen is our executive producer. All of the music in today's episode is from Track Club by Marmoset, a certified B Corp. What Works is recorded on the ancestral homeland of the Susquehannock and Conestoga peoples in what is now called Central Pennsylvania. The Yellow House sits on the unceded land of the Kutunaha Nation. 